Well, we are um, going to be wrapping up our Invest series this morning. It's kind of taken a strange turn because some of y'all know, some of you don't. That's fine. Um, that we kind of had the COVID thing go through the Hurchin family. So there was a couple weeks we weren't in this, and Mike and Charlie filled in. And but we are wrapping it up this morning. And just as a reminder, where we've been because we actually started it back in the second Sunday of January. We began by looking at motivation to why should we invest into our relationship with God? Why should we spend the time and sacrifice the time and sacrifice maybe some of our things to get in deeper into our relationship with God? And we began in the book of Romans, and we saw we are to invest and go deeper because of how much God invested in us. The Bible tells us that before we came to Christ, and if you're not in Christ this morning, you are an enemy of God. And for those who are in Christ, we once were an enemy of God. We were opposed to everything that God was. And then God sent his son to invest in us, to save us from our sins, to save us from the wages and the cost of our sin, that we might be forgiven and be given eternal life. And and then God defines us no longer as an enemy, but now a child of his. And he says this beautiful word, I, I love that he gave to Paul for us, that we're justified. And that word means just as if we have never sinned before a holy God. It's actually a legal term declaring our righteousness, not of our own doing, but our righteousness that Christ has imparted to us. And so that is our motivation. And from there, we extended by looking at investing in reading and studying Scripture. And we spent quite a bit of time on that Sunday about reading and studying Scripture. Uh, reading, find a reading plan to be in Scripture. And I'm not, I'm not talking about devotionals. I'm talking about being actually in the Word of God and reading it. But studying is differently. Studying is going to take more time. That's why it's going to be an investment. It's going to take time to, to not do something else, to get into the depths of what God is wanting to speak to our hearts and what God is wanting to do in our lives. And then we looked at last week that that reading and studying is not just for our head knowledge. It's not just for our own benefit, but it's so we can invest in other people's lives, be believers and unbelievers through the act of discipleship and evangelism. This morning is our final uh, message of the series, and we're going to be look at three final investments this morning, and we're going to look at multiple passages of Scripture to bring out these investments. And here are the three. Invest in the body, and we'll talk about what that means here in a second. Invest in the tithe, and invest in offerings. And these are all three things that have a huge impact on our life and a huge impact on the church and a huge impact in the eternal life of other people. So let's begin by invest in the body. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 to start. We're going to begin in verse 3 and read through verse 8. And the word of the Lord says, For by the grace given to me, this is Apostle Paul writing, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, this isn't the only time the Apostle Paul is led by the Holy Spirit in order to talk about the body of Christ. And when he refers to the body, he's referring to the church. And he uses that image of the church being a body because we all come together individually in members to form one functioning, healthy body. Paul also does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. 
And since we're jumping into the middle of Revelation or more towards the near end of Revelation, we should gain just a little bit of context of what this letter is about. So Paul is writing to a group of believers who live in the city of Rome. He hasn't met the bulk of these believers. He may have come across a couple of them during his missionary journeys. And he's writing to really introduce himself, but also so that they can invest in his ministry through an offering so that he may take the gospel on into Italy. The bulk of the letter deals with who we are before we came to Christ, and then now who we are now that we are in Christ by our faith alone in what Christ has done. And as we come to chapter 12 of Romans, Paul has now begun to turn the corner. And he's now, after he's now laid the foundation of Christianity and faith and the necessity of faith for the believer, he now begins to say, okay, this is now how as a believer... We should live in response to the great gift and act of God found through Jesus Christ. And so the opening of chapter 12 begins by calling us to become a living sacrifice. And by being a living sacrifice, we are no longer to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And it's from that statement where we come to verse 3, where Paul is now led to turn his attention onto the body. The body is a term that Paul frequently uses in Scripture in describing what we know as the church. And the church is not a building. The church is the gathering of believers. It literally means people whom God has called out of this world to gather together in order to call out to the world who is still in sin. And here in this letter and the other letters that we've mentioned, Paul refers to the church as one body. And what this is meant to help us understand is even though we are all individuals, Even though we all have different talents and passions and abilities and focuses and different roles, when we come together as the church to form the body, we are to come together in a unified effort under the name of Jesus Christ. So it's no longer about who we are individually as much as it is about us pointing people to who Jesus is, and that is our main purpose as the body of Christ. And we have to keep in mind, at this point in Romans 12, At this point in history, the church is kind of this new organism. I mean, a lot of us grew up in church, and so we're familiar with things that happen in church. But at this point, the church is now just getting developed. It's just now figuring out what it's supposed to be doing, what its ministry is, what its mission is. It's it's beginning to spread throughout the known world, and it's beginning to find heavy persecution by those individuals who are opposed to Christ. Most of Paul's letters deal with people coming into the church who are speaking against Christ and trying to pull people away from Christ. And so the church is beginning to grow. And Paul's understanding of the church is that it isn't something that he came up with. It's not something he developed through his own thinking and line of thought or his own meditations. Paul would have been taught about what the church should be through the teachings of Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 13, Jesus says, As a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, by our love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in John chapter 17, where it's known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus actually prayed for us as the church, his body, He said, he prayed this to the Father, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and that the world may believe that you have sent me. So here's one aspect of being invested into the body, into the church, the gathering of God's people. Invest in the body by investing in unity. 
If you didn't catch what Jesus said in John 13 and John 17, Jesus said that the world would know that we belong to God, that we are found in Jesus Christ by our unity or our love for one another. Jesus teaches us that if we have something against another brother or sister in Christ, we are to first go and seek reconciliation and forgiveness with them before we come into the presence of God. That's how big unity is to God, especially among his people. And I kind of think of it like a boiling pot of water. I like to cook at home, and I began thinking about what does it mean when disagreement happens and anger is in somebody. It's like a boiling pot of water. And if you ever sat there and put a boiling pot of water on the stove and just watched it, it seems like it takes forever even to begin to do anything, right? But that's kind of what disagreement and anger does in the heart. It may not be visible, but it's there. It's doing something. And eventually you start to see the bubbles on the bottom of the pan, and you know the water's heating up. You could probably still stick your hand in there and not be incredibly burned. It may be hot for a moment, but it's not going to hurt you too bad. And, and that's what happens when we don't deal with our disagreements and our anger. It begins to fester in the heart. It begins to bubble up. It, it begins to become somewhat visible. We know something's going on, but we can't quite put our finger on it. And then what eventually happens, the water begins to bubble all the way to the top. And that's what happens. We don't deal with our anger. We don't deal with our, our, have a forgiving heart. We don't seek out reconciliation. And that begins to bubble out into our lives so that other people begin to see it. It begins to have an impact on the things around it. You can feel the heat. If you put your face over the bubbling water, it would kind of moisturize the skin, I guess. But you know what happens if you don't take care of the bubbling water? You just continue to let it to heat up. It overflows. It makes a mess. And that's what happens in the church. When we as God's people don't seek reconciliation, don't seek forgiveness with one another, and we just kind of let say, oh, it's not a big deal. No one really knows about it. Eventually, it's going to start changing our attitudes. It's going to start changing our words, our thoughts, the ways we look at people. And it's become a little more visible. And then it's going to start to bubble up where people are like, something's wrong here. And then it just makes a mess. And a lot of people aren't pushed away from Christ because of the message of the gospel. A lot of people are pushed away from Christ because of the way of God's people treat one another. And I'm, I'm happy to say that's not that I know of happening here. But you know if you have something against someone that belongs to this church. You know you have someone against someone who maybe goes to another church. You're to seek reconciliation. You're to seek forgiveness. You're to let that be released. As the body, as the church, as God's people, God's word commands us we must get along. And one of the greatest testimonies to the world is how we treat and love one another. It's how we have a relationship with one another. But there's another aspect of investing in the body. Invest in the body by being involved. And we come back here to Romans chapter 12. Paul is writing to a group of believers who are surrounded by this mentality, this ideology of rank and success and rising up in the culture, of achieving more within the Roman Empire. The Roman society was so fixed on independent success and titles and prestige. You rise in the ranks, you get greater titles, you gain more wealth, you're elevated to a new status. It's not so much 
different from what we see in the world today, especially here in America. We have titles of CEOs and presidents and bosses and managers. We see people rise in salaries. Students who may be on a different level where you, you, you are a certain level of honor roll. You're the you're superintendent's honor roll. You're the principal's honor roll. You may be a captain of the team or you're the starter of the team. Maybe you get to lead in the play. Maybe you're the first chair in band. And we have these titles of prestige. And I'm not saying titles are wrong. A lot of times those happen in life is because we've worked really hard to obtain them. We've put the effort in. We've put the time in. We've invested in those things. But when we come to the church, when we come to the body, it's different. I hope you understand Harvest Hill will not spiritually succeed because of a great pastor or preacher. And I'm not saying I am one. Harvest Hill will not succeed because of a great youth ministry or a great event that we do out in public. The only way that Harvest Hill and the church spiritually succeeds is when all of the members come together to work as one to complete a unified task. We're told here in Romans 12, verse 4, the members do not all have the same function. It means we don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same passions. We don't all have the same talents. We don't all have the same abilities because, verse 6 of chapter 12, we have gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us. This means there are some here, and we, I think we know this, there's some here who are more passionate about certain things than other people. And what I've seen in church, in my time in church life, is sometimes that creates obstacles. Sometimes that creates walls and people can't seem to get along because, well, they're not as passionate about missions or they're not as passionate about student ministry or children's church as I am. And it becomes, what's wrong with them? But notice what God says in his word. God says that it's a good thing that we all have different passions. Because if we all had a passion for student ministry, if we all had a passion for children's church or for nursery or helping out in the kitchen, or we all had a passion for prayer, the Bible says, God says, we would not be a healthy body. But at the same time, we're supposed to use what God has given us to accomplish the unified work of the entire body. So we bring our individuality, but we bring it to strengthen the body as a whole. And here's the application. If this is where God has called you to be, if you believe God is bringing you to Harvest Hill, bringing you to this body, then God has called you to bring your passions, your abilities, your trainings, your talents, and your gifts so that this body can function properly. God did not bring you here to sit in a chair. Praise the Lord. He brought you here to use you, that he might be glorified through you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses the same analogy of the body to point out that there's not one part that's more important than the other part. And he does this through the physical idea of hands and feet and ears and eyes and that they all have to work together in order for the body to be healthy. The point is that the worship leader is not important, more important than the nursery leader. The student minister, Jason, is not more important than those teaching back in the children's church right now. The pastor, even though I may be seen in a more prominent role, is not more important than the people working in the kitchen and the people that are spending hours in prayer or the people that work behind the scenes to take care of the facility. 
We all work together as one body. We rely upon one another. We rely upon the power of the Spirit inside of us to complete the task to which God has given his church. So invest in being involved. And I want to give you a few ways to pray about and think about it. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have children in children's church or in the nursery. And that's a blessing to you in this very moment. Because your children are back there. You can focus on what God is laying before you right now through his word. And so it's blessing you. Maybe you need to pray about being a blessing to other parents. And get plugged into the children's church ministry. And get plugged into the nursery. So that you can be a blessing to someone else just as much as they are blessing you in this very moment. Maybe you have students in the student ministry. Maybe you need to come to Jason and say, hey, how can I be a blessing to you in this ministry? How can I be a blessing to the student ministry? It might be as a chaperone. I can tell you right now, Jason's never going to ask you to be a chaperone for a lock-in, right? Because they're of the devil, so we won't do those. (laughs) But it may be to be a chaperone on a weekend event. It may be to be a chaperone to go to camp. It may be a chaperone just to be involved on a Wednesday night. Maybe you can be a financial blessing to the student ministry. Maybe you are blessed financially. Maybe you have a home that could fit several students. So so when we have a disciple now in, is it October, November? You can say, you know what, I'm going to open up my home. And these students can come and be at my house. Maybe you can just volunteer your driving abilities. And this doesn't go with student ministries. It goes with children's ministries as well. Maybe you just volunteer your driving abilities. Maybe your vehicle. Say, hey, you can use me, and I'll drive them around wherever they need to go because sometimes we have an event where we can't fit them all in a church van, which is a huge blessing. But we still got to get them places. Maybe you're here and you have the ability to play an instrument or you've been gifted vocally. You can sing. You may not want other people to know, but you know you can. God has given you that gift that other people don't have. And so maybe it's going to our worship team and saying, hey, you know, I can play the guitar, I can play the, the piano. If you say you play the drums, you really got to take that up with Darren, but you can bring it up. Um, or I can sing. I'd like to, to help out anyway, because there are times when our worship team, not all of them can be here. There are times their kids get sick. There are times they get sick. There are times they get called away on the weekend for work. There are times, believe it or not, they go on vacation, which is a good thing. I'm so impressed with our current drummer and the way he is just managing his schedule. If you didn't know, why don't you throw that up there, Danny? Our current drummer is just incredibly busy this time of year. Uh, He's just curling away now. He's, He's a little more modest. This year at the Olympics, because he's wearing a wig that has longer hair, but if you've seen him, it just looks so luxurious as he goes down the ice and his hair flows up. But, you know, joking aside, there's times that people can't be here on the worship team, and maybe you have the ability to help out with that. Maybe you have a talent or ability to fix things. That's not me. But maybe you have that ability, okay, I know how that how that could be fixed. I know how that would work. And so maybe he's like, hey, what are some things around here I can help fix? The point is to be invested in the body by being involved. And if you don't know where to get involved, then start praying about it. God, where do you want me? You obviously want me here. Where do you want me to be involved in? And maybe, maybe 
God's going to start laying upon your heart and your mind a new ministry as he did with Sharla, and that's going to be something that's going to continue to strengthen the body and continue to open more doors of ministry. He's not giving it to you, and I thank you, Sharla, that you did this. He's not giving that ministry idea to you to come tell the pastor, I think we should start this ministry. He's giving that ministry to you because he's given you the passion, the talents, and abilities to do it, to lead it. And even if you feel overwhelmed by it, God will empower you in your weakness so his strength can be seen through it. But be involved. The second focus of our investment this morning takes us into the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 3, and that's invest in the tithe. It's probably the most used passage concerning tithe, but it's not the only passage in Scripture that concerns the tithe. Malachi chapter 3 will be in verse 10 here in a second. Before we even start talking about the tithe, here's what the tithe is all about. You ready? One word. Trust. That's what tithing is really about. It's about trust. The word tithe literally means 10%. And so here's the implication. When it comes to the tithe, we give 10% back to God from all that God has already given us. What I mean by that is everything we have is from God. 100% of what you own, 100% of what you get paid or what you earn is from God. And what God asks in the tithe is that we trust him with the 10% of the 100% he already owns. So our verse is Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And as we do with Romans, we must do with Malachi and gain a little more context. Here's what's happened. The people of God have returned back to the promised land. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the reason they left the promised land is because they were unfaithful to God. And so he brought judgment upon them, and he took them away. Now, there was a small remnant that was left, but it was not what it was under King David or King Solomon. Now, we would think that they would have learned their lesson. You know, if, if, if unfaithfulness took us from where God wanted us to be, and now God has brought us back, then therefore we would think they would be set on living faithfully. Yet the book of Malachi, which is a prophetic book, like other prophetic books in the Old Testament, reveal that this was not the case. As the people of God went back into their normal routine of life. And so the book of Malachi is actually a book about burdens. Some translations or versions of Scripture call them oracles. It means a burden. God is coming and speaking to the prophet Malachi that he has burdens about his people. And he is revealing these burdens to his people so that the prophet Malachi can call them out. And so in our Old Testament passage, even though this is an Old Testament passage, the word tithe is not an Old Testament practice. Jesus never speaks against the tithe in his ministry. The only thing he speaks against when it comes to the tithe is the heart of the tither. And one other aspect when it comes to this section that the Lord is dealing with, in verse 6, the Lord begins and introduces the tithe by this statement. I, the Lord, do not change. 
So here in Malachi 3, concerning tithe, the Lord comes to his people. He pronounces the burden upon his people that he is having with them by telling them that they are stealing from him. Some versions say that they are robbing him. And to this, the people of God, instead of hearing God speak to them and agree that he's right and they've been wrong, they're taken back. What do you mean we're robbing you? They don't understand. They can't wrap their head around it. And we may have heard this before, but when it comes to this verse, when the Lord reveals this burden, this is the only subject matter in Scripture, the tithe, the only subject matter in Scripture to which the Lord God says, put me to the test on this one. All other places we are told not to test God. But when it comes to the tithe, when it comes to our trusting God, he says, test me. You see, God, who created everything, owns everything, he knows the complexity of finances. God understands the worries that finances can bring in our life. God understands that sometimes we can be more attached to the physical. And so for this reason, when it comes to the tithe, God says, I dare you to trust me in this matter. I dare you to test my faithfulness and to test my promises. So this is a huge dare, right? This is a huge test and is applied to the tithe. God says the first thing we should do before anything is spent, before anything is bought, is to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. What that means is 10% right off the top. And here's the thing when it comes about the tithe. This doesn't just speak about our salaries. Maybe you did a Christmas bonus. Maybe you did a tax return. Maybe you got a couple of government checks. Birthday cash. We have to understand any source of income is to be tithed on because all of it came from God. It doesn't matter who signed the check. God is our beneficiary. So we were to bring the whole tithe. And in Malachi, what God does, because he's a loving God, he knows we're going to be reluctant to do this. This is why he says, test me in this. Because God knows our simple mindset, that we'll look at our budget and like, oh, man, it's tight. Or he knows that we get through a month and we are stretching it thin just to get to that next paycheck or that another source of, in, uh, of income. And for this reason, God says, trust me with the tithe and hear what I will do. I will pour down a blessing until there is no more need. In other words, what God is saying to us is the reason things are running tight. The reason things are running thin isn't because we can't tithe. Rather, it's because we aren't tithing. And so we have to come to a place where we're going to trust God's math over our math. We're going to trust God's word over our word. Do we believe God is faithful? Do we believe God can be trusted? Do we believe God keeps his promises? And tithing is never a money issue. It's a trust issue. So here's the application. If you're currently tithing, keep it up. And if you're not, 
Step out on faith and trust God. I remember when Jamie found out we weren't tithers. And she called me out on it. And I told her, you know how tight it is. And she said, but this is what God tells us to do. And I'm not saying when we started tithing and we never had a car break down or an appliance go out or something needed to be fixed at the house and that we've never been sick. That's not what tithing's about. But when we started tithing, everything else in the budget fell into line. And we never went without, even in times when she was the only source of income. And we had two kids and a house payment. And we were buying diapers. And you know how expensive diapers are. We never went without. We never did not have enough. Maybe your question when it comes to tithe is, where does it go? And I put it in the basket, and I come back the next week, and it's not there. (laughs) So where does it go? When you tithe, it goes to support the ministries and the missions that Harvest Hill is doing. And it goes to support other missions. We are now supporting missionaries internationally and missionaries nationally. But... If you're one of those, I, just, I would like a detailed ledger. If you're just one of those, not, not just like for your own book, even, you just, you're just curious, then put this date down, March 20th. March 20th, we're having a family meeting. That's code for business meeting. But that's when we talk about how God has been blessing us through faithful tithers. Here's the final investment. Invest in the offering. The offering is different than the tithe. The tithe is 10% right off the butt, right off the top, right off of whatever income that comes to your life. An offering is above and beyond the tithe. And so offerings are typically asked for when needs arise within the church. And so we've had offerings that have helped people within the church who are going through a very difficult time. We've had offerings to help people that are outside of the church are going through a difficult time. We've had offerings to help members and non-members. We take up offerings to buy supplies for Vacation Bible School, which we'll have this summer. We take up offerings to help support the student ministry, whether that's through food or, or supplies that Jason may need. We take offerings to help pay for kids to go to camp. We never want money to be a reason a child cannot go to a Bible preaching camp. And so we'll take up offerings. Hey, we've got so many kids that want to go to camp this year, and, and they can't pay for it. The families can't provide that. And so we'll say we, we would like to take up an offering to send those kids to camp. We've taken offerings up for Minister Alliance. We've taken offerings up to help send students to youth camp. We've taken offerings up that are what we call love offerings. And sometimes they go to the staff here at the church. Sometimes they go to what we call FOFTI, which is a ministry. An acronym means from our family to yours. And we typically do this at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but this last year we did it at a different time as a family is going through a really rough patch in, in life. And these are just to minister to families by providing them food at Thanksgiving and gifts at Christmas. And we just do that as as an offering. I want to say this because I've encountered this many times in ministry. And I don't keep track of the books, okay? I don't know who in here ties or who gives what. I don't want to, okay? But when it comes to your tithe, here's something you better not be doing. You better not be giving a tithe and writing out details of where you want that tithe to go in the church. That's not a tithe. You're telling God what to do with his 10%. If you want to specifically give to something, that's an offering. 
that's above and beyond your tithe. And I only bring that up because I've encountered it many times in ministry where individuals will want to keep control of their tithe. And that's not trusting God. But there are numerous places we can learn about the offering. To start off, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. Peter has preached the first evangelical message, the gospel message. Thousands have accepted Jesus Christ and are now saved and been given the power of the Spirit and they've been baptized. And we come to the end of Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. One of our first investments that we started off with in verse 44, we see all who were believed were together and they had all things in common. It means the body was united. They were one. But then look in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This wasn't a tithe here. This is a massive love offering. The people of God were relinquishing their worldly possessions for an eternal impact. This was far beyond 10%. Now jump with me to Acts chapter 4. You may just have to turn the page. Beginning in verse 32. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So they're unified. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Did you catch that? God's people were so moved by the grace and love of God that they were bringing all their surplus, all their possessions, and they were selling them. And when it says they were laying them at the apostles' feet, they did that to support the ministry of the church. And we may push back and say, well, people just don't do that anymore, Pastor Mike. People don't. That's just that's crazy living. That, that, that's, that, that just does not work. Here's the question, Why? Do we not have enough? Are we not blessed? Do we not have good things? I want to quote the great theologian Jody Kemper for a second. She told me about a month ago, standing back there with Jamie, she said, I've tried to outgive God before, but it never works. 
Several months ago, my, my in-laws, they lived in Tipton, Missouri, <clears throat> and they decided they were going to move, or they lived in California, Missouri, sorry, and they decided they are going to move to Tipton, Missouri. This is after they already moved from Owensville, Missouri, and they sold uh, Jamie's house that she grew up in, which was a big emotional thing. Um, but anyway, so they, they moved to Tipton. Uh, one, Jamie's older brother lived there, and um, so some of the grandkids were in that town, and they moved into a rental. But before they moved to that rental, they had actually bought some property in California, Missouri. And they were planning to build a house, and they were going to live in California, Missouri. And they liked the church that they were going to while they were in California. They were in a current rental at that time. They even went and got uh, blueprints and floor plans to build this house, and they tinkered with it to the point that it would work best for them. But then God moved them to Tipton. And they really felt where they were in the rental they're currently in now in Tipton is where God wanted them to be. Problem was, they had this piece of land in California. And so what they ended up doing is they ended up putting the property up to sell because they knew where they were was where God was supposed to, wanted them to be. Now, in the process of this, they started attending a church for just a couple months, and this church that they were attending was going through a building plan. They were adding on to their building to expand the ministry. And so Jamie's folks promised God that if he gave them a profit on the land, they would give all of the profit to this church that they had just started attending. Because they realized that they purchased land, God allowed them to purchase land, and if, the, if God made the land profitable in the short period of time they had, then that was God's doing, and so they were just going to give all that profit back to God. So basically, they just wanted to break even. Here's the thing. They did not vote on the building plans for this building extension. They were not in on the process of the questions and going through the steps in order to get there. They were not at that business meeting, but they knew that this is where, that was the church God had placed them, and God had given them a place to rent that they really enjoyed, and if God was given give them profit, then it's going to go all back to God, not, even, not 10%, all of it. Now, I'm not going to say how much they gave, but I will say this, the amount they gave made Jamie and I gasp. And I know it's more than what many people in their area and maybe some people in this area make in a month. But it was God's. And they don't do that for bragging rights. They didn't do that so hopefully their son-in-law would use it as an illustration. But before we jump to a conclusion, oh, man, it's got to be some massive amount, go with me to Mark 12 real quick. Mark 12, beginning in verse 41. We're still talking about investing in the offering. And he, this is Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So here's the thing. 
Jesus is at the temple, which in our day would be kind of like the church. And he's seeing all these people come and drop their huge amounts of money into the offering box, no doubt making noise so other people can be ooing and aahing on how generous these guys are. And along comes this poor little widow, and Jesus draws his disciples' attention to her. And I can just seem to all right, watch this. This is going to be huge when it comes to the offering. And he draws his attention to this poor widow, and he says that this widow put more in, and all she put in were two small copper coins which make a penny, verse 42. And that word for penny actually is two lepta. It's a form of Greek currency. It amounts to about one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. And so if you want to pull out your calculator on your phone, you can figure out how much a percentage that is. But I'll just break it down. When I was in high school, I began working at a grocery store at the age of 14. I started at the, the high minimum wage payment of $3.50 an hour, $3.50 an hour. So you can know how old I am now. And so I was only permitted to work six hours a day because of, of law since I was under the age of 16. So in six hours a day at $3.50 an hour, I would make about $21 before taxes. Then you figure taxes. So I pull home about $19. Bucks. As a 14-year-old, not too bad, right? So if I'm this poor widow in that circumstance, I would give 30 cents into the offering and Jesus would commend me. Not the ones dropping thousands or hundreds. He would commend me because of the heart. Because why? The offering, what's above and beyond the tithe, is never about the amount. It's about the heart of the giver. It's not the amount that God cares about. It's the heart. And so when we hear of a need that God brings to the church's attention, you may be an individual that God or family that God is financially blessed where you can throw down $100 or $1,000. And that's awesome only if you can do it under these circumstances. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. At the same time, when we hear of a need and a call for an offering, we cannot allow Satan to discourage us if we can only give a dollar or $20. Because here's what the greatness of our God does. He takes all of the offering that's brought in and he makes it into a huge blessing. And so we all work together. And when it comes to offering, if God lays something on your heart that you're going to write a check for thousands or maybe you're just going to give the last $5 you've got in your wallet. Then God says do it cheerfully, knowing that God will bless that endeavor and his grace will abound to you. I think the biggest obstacle we have when it comes to the, the offerings, not the tithe, the offerings, is sometimes we just blow it off. We don't pray about it. We don't think about it. We automatically disqualify ourselves saying, you know, I, I wouldn't even make an impact in that. But when it comes to the offering, it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. It's about your heart. What are you willing to trust God and relinquish to God, even if you think it's such a small amount? Now, why would we want to be unified, attached to the body, attached to the church? Why would we want to be a tither? Why would we want to become a giver? And to answer these questions, we only have to point to Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again that we might be unified with God. And when we are unified with God, we become a part of God's eternal family, which is seen by our involvement in the body of Christ, in the church.
and we tithe. Because if we can trust God with our eternal security, then we can definitely trust God with 10% of what already belongs to him. And we become a giver, an offering giver, because it reflects the heart of our Father, who's the greatest giver ever known. And how do we know that? Because that's the gospel. See, God created you to be in a relationship with him. And if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you haven't been forgiven, then you're an enemy of God and your sins are separating you from God. Not just today, but they, if it is not taken care of, it'll separate you from God into eternity. And you can't do enough good things. You can't give enough into the offering plate. You can't give enough tithe. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough in order to work your way to God because it's only found in Jesus Christ alone. That's why he came. He paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross. He rose again to show us that forgiveness can be found and eternal life can be given. And the Bible says anyone and everyone who believes in this will be saved. Now, are you here this morning and need to change your relationship with God from an enemy to a child? If you are, I'm going to be standing down here and you say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved because that's part of salvation is we must confess him. Confessing means to make public. So if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come down. But maybe you're here, and God has kept getting on you about maybe not being involved, maybe not tithing, maybe an offering or a need has come up, and you said, ah. And you need to come before the Father and repent. We currently have an offering going on right now I just want to remind you of. We're trying to pay off this building. We have about 60000 some dollars left. And I bring that up because I really want us all to pray about it. It may be just be a dollar a month, but God will take all of it and he'll use it. And we don't want to just be done with this building to say that we don't owe anything on the building. We want to be done with the building payment so we can expand into other ministries that God obviously is bringing our way that we've already heard through Charlotte. Let's pray together. If you need to come down and talk about accepting Christ, I'm going to invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness. Thank you for blessing us, for every good gift comes from you. Thank you, Lord, that you do not change, that you are constant, and we can trust you. Forgive us in those times we wrestle with that, but, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, even in our unfaithfulness. Father, we want to be a church that is unified together under the name of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that is being obedient, not just going through the motions, but we want to obey you and serve you and worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we want to be a church that is willing to give up of ourselves and our possessions if it will impact someone else or another family, another community, maybe even another nation for the kingdom of God. I thank you for what you're doing here at Harvest Hill. I thank you for how you're changing us and making us even better than we are today. Continue to do the good work in us. Lord, we come this time of invitation, this time of response, so that we are not just hearers of your word, but doers. We praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.